This station and hundreds of other radio and TV stations throughout this part of the country are pooling their resources through an emergency network hookup to keep you informed of all developments. At this hour, we repeat, these are the facts as we know them. There is an epidemic of mass murder being committed by a virtual army of unidentified assassins. Hello, cassettes, and welcome back to the Black Case Diaries. Hey! Hello. <laughs> We're three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. And Adam. Hey. 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 Welcome back. So last week we started Frightening February with a horrifyingly historical episode on horror <laughs> film history. It was so scary. Yeah. I couldn't even finish it. I had to leave. <laughs> Well, this week we're continuing to look at how the genre evolved through the decades. Yay! Adam, you're at least getting a, an appreciation of horror, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Oh, we're no, doing yeah, this it, for nothing. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, man. <laughs> it's very cool, but I don't, you know, I, I learning about something doesn't necessarily make me want to, like, dive in. <laughs> but There's some good ones I think you'd <laughs> yeah. like. I'm sure there are. Yeah. Art often imitates life, and vice versa. If there's anything we learned from last week, horror art is no exception. Follow these films, and you will find the history of our fears, and how we responded to them. This week, we're starting in the 1950s, when the fears of communism, war, and radiation poison were ruling the lives of the American public. This week's discussion will stop at the end of the 1980s, but don't worry, after this month, we won't be closing the book on horror history forever. No, of course not. No. Oh. I mean, we really can't. It's just too packed full. You can't close. You can't even close it. You can't. <laughs> this is this is the suitcase you have to have someone sit on while you pack it. <laughs> so snuggle up with a blanket and a bowl of popcorn. And just so you don't forget, it's only a podcast. That's right. Don't forget. Don't get too scared. <laughs> yeah. Last week, we ended our discussion in the 1940s, when vampires and werewolves were the least of the world's concerns. A Great Depression ended in a world war, bringing old fears from the Great War back into light. Hollywood took notes, and instead of trying to compete with the real-world horror of the atomic bomb and the Holocaust, they lightened up on horror films. But as the decade went on, new fears guided the pens of screenwriters and the lenses of directors, and the horror films of the 1950s were on the horizon. Oh, yeah. It couldn't last forever. Nope. Couldn't last forever all that time of not scaring people. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Why not, though? <laughs> all of the campy, you know. That stuff is pretty delightful. You'll find most of it on, like, Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> <laughs> Right, where they're beautiful. Like, yeah, you go into it knowing this movie's not great, mm -hmm. so we're just gonna make jokes about it. Yeah, the <laughs> entire time. Although the Second World War appeared to be over, it left some nasty scars. After America caused devastation in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the threat of the atom bomb and the effects of radiation started to manifest at the local cinema. I think a lot of this had to do too with the testing site. <clears throat> And people, uh, all the witnesses from when they tested the atomic bomb yes. as well, kind of really added a lot of the fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually seeing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
This led to films about giant monsters, huge insects, large people, and even gelatinous blobs. Whoa. Oh, man. <laughs> Though I believe the gelatinous blob was something from outer space. <laughs> Just in case. I mean, just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, good, good. The truth was, audiences were no longer interested in horror that took place in far-off and non-existent lands. They wanted to be shown the dangers of their own society. Why? We'll never know. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> so the movies of the 1950s delivered. But instead of giving audiences terrifying realism, they comically exaggerated the common fears of the American people. This was a time period where horror fell further out of the mainstream and into B-movie territory. The plot seemed silly, but the scares were real. The stars of these films weren't considered for the A-list, and you wouldn't see a movie like The Blob on the Oscar shortlist. What? You Come wouldn't? On. Yes. You know, the only... The, <laughs> I found out about The Blob because of the movie Grease. Oh, oh yeah. When, when they go to the drive-in, that's... They're what watching they're the watching? trailer for it. Oh, my gosh. Every one of you watching this screen, look out. Because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. Beautiful. How do you come up with something like that? <laughs> I mean, I get the uh, the atomic nature of monsters and yeah, all that yeah. stuff. But, yeah. but literally, <laughs> like evil flubber you know yeah. what I'm talking about so it's like how does that happen evil flubber. also in the 1950s theaters started employing gimmicks to get people to pay the price of admission one of these was 3D viewing which was really popular with horror audiences Ooh. so in the 40s television became a thing and because of that actually People go into the theaters, audiences depleted by almost 50%. I believe wow. it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so people yeah. stopped going to the movies when TV became a thing, which is kind of, kind of what's happening right now, sort of. Yeah. In a new way, yeah. Yeah, it's like a whole different, <laughs> it's a whole different <laughs> example of it. Yeah. It's, the principle is almost exactly the same, though, because it's like, why go to the theater when I can do it at home? Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. It, the difference yeah. is just it being broadcast versus streamed over the internet. Yes, yeah. But no matter how popular or unpopular the genre was, it always served its most loyal fan base, the outcasts. It was the people that didn't fit in that flocked to the theaters to watch the lives of on-screen conformists get ripped apart by hideous monsters. <laughs> I just... Yeah! Yeah. You, you know, you're that kid that gets made fun of in school, right? Mm -hmm. And you go to the movie theater and you see the jock get killed. By an alien, and you're kind of like, ha! It's <laughs> like, I mean, with my superior intellect, I would have seen the alien coming. <laughs> what a fool! Monster movies didn't just come from fears of radiation poisoning. In 1952, courts ruled that films were free speech, and censorship from local and state committees ceased. Seriously, please listen to our MPA episode if you have not listened to that episode yet. We talk about that yes. there. Yes. <laughs> This was incredible news for horror, as monsters could run amok on screen once more. So finally, they could actually make yes. monsters in the 1950s, Woo. and that's why monster movies became a thing. Yes, right. you didn't have to kill them off. Yes, Woo. yes, the, they could win at the they end. Could, yeah. they could, heaven forbid. <gasps> but the monsters win, the, the, the characters <laughs> learn a lesson. Imagine. What? Wow. <laughs> Morals. <laughs> Nonsense. 
In Japan, filmmakers harnessed the destructive power of radiation and created the king of 1950s monster movies, Godzilla. Go listen to that episode, please. Yeah, yeah. it's great. <laughs> it's a, an older one. Yeah, yeah, older one with a special yeah. guest. So the sound is probably different. That's <laughs> ah, fine. But it's good enough. It's good. The atom bomb also forced Americans to consider the possibility of the end of days and what kind of world humans would leave behind. The 1955 film The Day the World Ended was the first to address this existential question, and stories concerning the end of mankind would carry over into the next decade. That's something that I think has carried on forever, yeah. <laughs> like since, you know what I mean? Like Every once in a while, we still get those like huge disaster movies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're like, oh, this is... What? Come on. Yes, uh, the day after tomorrow. Yeah, or mm-hmm. there was that one that was like, I think it was called like Geostorm or something oh like that. Do you remember that? It's yes. Like, I mean, it's just another one of these big disaster mm-hmm. movies yeah. where, where everything is going wrong, right? But it's mm-hmm. just like, ah, uh, it's a little campy. Yeah. Americans, and the world for that matter, had been trained to watch the skies for signs of attack. A current arms race and Cold War with the Soviet Union only heightened the fear that something would be coming from above. In 1947, there was a mysterious crash in Roswell, New Mexico. A local rancher gathered the debris from the site, which was then seized by the government. A press release referred to the downed object as a flying saucer. And a later press release corrected that statement to say it was a weather balloon. Yeah, right. (laughs) Who believes that? (laughs) Oh, gosh. It's well known that humans fear the unfamiliar, and nothing was more alien than, well, aliens from outer space. Of course, the fear of an alien invasion was not new in the 1950s, hence the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast in the 1930s, but it was clear that this fear had returned and wasn't going anywhere. So spacemen were a popular subject matter in many 1950s sci-fi horror films. Yes, it came from outer space to fill the world with terror, to bring you unforgettable suspense. They're so cool. It's, <laughs> yeah. that's, I guess this is one piece of horror that maybe I'd be all right. <laughs> because I find aliens, or the concept of aliens, very fascinating. And I like space and science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's the conspiracy for you guys. Mm. All of these are, you know, aliens put into the mainstream all these movies were getting made and so that we would get used to the idea of aliens right oh oh yeah <laughs> so that when the government finally tells us that yes aliens exist we're like all right <laughs> i don't think they even have to tell us anymore yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> i feel True. like i feel like now they would and we'd be like <laughs> Duh. Uh, we <laughs> yeah. knew that already. We figured that out a while ago. Ah, see, it's all part of the plan. <laughs> In the early 1950s, aliens were depicted as a terrifying threat. The Thing from Another World in 1951 was an example. John Carpenter, who would remake the film in 1982, was drawn to the ending and how they destroyed the creature with flame. Another example came in 1953, when aliens appeared on screen in H.G. Wells' sci-fi classic, War of the Worlds. So it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about how horror movies kind of reflect some of the issues of the time. And Mm -hmm. the 50s, there is a level of xenophobia, 
a level of racism, you mm-hmm. know, just kind of like they're different. We shall kill them. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, you know right. what I mean? Yep. Though in a lot of these, it's like, obviously they're a threat and then they're killed. Yeah, yeah. But it's still, it's still there. Like it's kind of lurking there in the, in the underbelly mm-hmm. of the movie. You know, it's like. Yeah, because yeah, you could always say like, well, what if? Yeah. They like, we just like. Yeah, there's two sides to this story and right. we're mm-hmm. only seeing the movie from one person's perspective. Mm-hmm. And if we've learned anything from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Caligari, however you say that name. But <laughs> Calamari. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. Yes. <laughs> If we've learned anything from that, we know that, yeah. you know, just because we're being told one side of the story doesn't mean that's actually the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's something we can always question in horror. These films enhance the mentality that we should destroy that which is different. It was much more popular for film aliens to be invaders, not lost species looking for a way home. Sure, a great big monster with several eyes and sharp teeth seems pretty scary. But do you know what's even scarier? The monsters that we can't see. After a depression and a war, Americans were desperately afraid of losing the picturesque ideals they had been promised. They were terrified of losing the American dream. And in that sense, nothing was a greater threat than communism. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all have these ideas of what the past was like. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And most of those ideas are wrong. You know, it's kind of like how we were saying last week, how we thought the 20s were probably, like, kind of cool. Because the nation was technically prosperous and, you know, but really everybody was reeling from a horrific war and Mm -hmm. (laughs) everyone was just dancing because they didn't have anything else they could do. And, you know, in the 1950s, this is one of those time periods where Everything want everybody wanted everything to seem perfect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because nothing had ever been perfect before. No. But suddenly there were like there was this ideal that everybody needed a house, everybody needed two kids, everybody yep. need, you know a and white it was, picket fence. Yeah, it was this weird. You know, women didn't really work. <clears throat> so yeah, this is really an interesting. This is an interesting time period, mm-hmm. the nineteen fifties. The Red Scare instilled the fear of invaders, posing as regular folks, living in the same pink houses as they did, sitting ticky-tacky all in a row. By the mid and late 1950s, films started utilizing this concept. Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956 masterfully combined the dangers of mob mentality with the fear of alien takeover, all while serving as a metaphor for the Red Scare. It's a lot in one movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man, yeah. They look like us. They talk like us. They could be us. Oh no, they could <sighs> be you, or me, or the cat. Even <laughs> you don't know. Who knows? Yeah. These fears penetrated the perfect society that Americans wanted to believe in, exposing the darkness that lay beneath the apple pie and lemonade. Ooh. Bob Dylan said it best. When he sang, the times, they are a-changin'. And boy, was there a lot of change in the 1960s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. Yeah. Every decade brought about its own shifts in technology or world events. But the 1960s were all about reform. Of course, this meant the movies changed as well. Mm Mm-hmm. The 1960s were marked by the civil rights movement, sexual revolution, 
violence, and anti-war protests, especially against Vietnam. We mentioned that the death of the Hollywood Production Code meant less censorship in the 1950s, but the effects really started to show in the 1960s. In the Supreme Court case of Joseph Burston Incorporated versus Wilson in 1952, it was found that a movie could not be banned because it was deemed sacrilegious. It was declared that expression by means of motion pictures is included within the free speech and free press guarantee of the First and Fourteenth Amendments. By 1968, the Hollywood Production Code was completely abandoned, which allowed filmmakers to really explore taboo topics like sex and violence. Horror started by challenging social norms, and it could finally return to its roots. Yeah! Suck it, Code. Heck yeah. You suck. (laughs) Throughout the 60s, there was a lot of violence politically. JFK got assassinated. Mm-hmm. I believe his brother Robert got assassinated in the 1960s as well. Oh my! So did Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a lot. There was a lot of assassinations, and you had the whole counterculture being born in California mm-hmm. down in Haight Ashbury and the hippie movement. It, it was a. It was a time. You know, there were parts of it that <laughs> seemed. Yeah. <laughs> there were parts of it that seemed kind of innocent. Almost, mm-hmm. you know, because there there were some very much like we want love, not war. We want peace, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, of course, there were a lot of really intense, horrible things that were also going yeah. on. At and the same time, yeah. at the same time, America got involved in Vietnam. <laughs> yep. So much like 3D of the 1950s, early 1960s horror also featured the gimmicks of William Castle. He issued special glasses to viewers of his 13 ghosts, which he called Illusiono in 1960. <laughs> wow. So they had filters on. I think this is so <laughs> funny. They had filters on the glasses so that you could see ghosts in the movie that you wouldn't see without the glasses. Wow, that's kind of cool. cool. Yeah, honestly. it's super cool. They had to do this stuff to get people to go see the movies because yeah. like we said, they're all cozy at home. Yeah, I mean, I would do that. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. I would go yeah. see a movie twice. Yeah, I think they should bring back Illusiono. I like that idea. Yeah. yeah. You'll be scared stiff too when you see what they see. Thirteen ghosts materializing in ectoplasmic color through the magic of Illusiono, the ghost viewer. Ah! In 1959, he installed something called Percepto in his theater for the showing of a film called The Tingler. Um, <laughs> I, I think I might spit that movie out. It just sounds wrong, doesn't it? It does. It just sounds wrong. I don't understand. Like, I don't know what it sounds like, but it just but it sounds just weird. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. want to, I don't want to be touched by this movie. Yeah. So I'm not going to go. But yeah, yeah, Yeah. get ready because random theater seats were set up to charge with electricity to simulate audience panic during the film. So you would go in and you could sit in one of the seats that are charged. (laughs) Get out of town. And it would just like shake the seat or whatever. No, thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'd rather do smell a vision. <laughs> the tingler was in the room with you. Oh, oh no. Don't say it like that. <laughs> I don't like that. Me neither. Back in the 1940s, noir thrillers were quite popular. One filmmaker, Val Luton, created films that walked the line between a noir thriller and a horror film. Supernatural creatures with human situations. Psychological thrillers didn't make it in the 1950s against the creature features and gimmicks. But in the 1960s, a filmmaker emerged that brought this type of scare back to the cinema and changed modern horror forever. I wonder who it was. Uh... Oh, man, that's really... I'm really... Yeah. So, like, noir thrillers, so it's kind of like... It's kind of like the detective movies. Yeah. But it's monsters. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know... It walks the line. I was reading the difference between a thriller and a chiller. Yeah. A thriller is one, is a movie that is based in our reality, the, the one that we exist in right now and things that we know to be real. And a, a chiller <laughs> is one that on has ice? supernatural. No. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. That's it. The thriller on ice. Is it a chiller? I it. A chiller is... <laughs> A chiller is one that has monsters in it, something supernatural. Interesting. That does ah. that we don't know to exist in our in gotcha. our world. So it's and, a, yeah, yeah. So his movies walked that line. They were supernatural in the sense that there were monsters, but it was a thriller in the sense that it was very real human experience that was going on. Yeah. It's impossible to talk about 1960s film without mentioning Alfred Hitchcock. There we go. That's who it is. There's his name. While movie restrictions faded, filmmakers became bolder and began seeing how far they could push the limits. And Hitchcock was no exception. His movie Psycho from 1960 would change the genre and film forever. I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. The film was based on a novel of the same name by Robert Bloch. After Hitchcock bought the film rights, he famously bought as many copies of the book as possible to prevent people from reading it and learning the ending. What? Mm -hmm. That's weird. Yeah. I guess I get it. It's kind of interesting. Isn't that odd? Isn't that weird? Imagine living at a time where all you had to do was buy up the books. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. (laughs) Definitely impossible now. Yeah. But this ensured his film was going to be as shocking as possible. It was a movie shrouded in secrecy. Yes. They did, people had no idea what they were coming into when they went to go see it. And I just wish I could have that experience. Yeah. I wish I could go see this movie and not know what's going to happen. Because it's just so... To us, it seems all very predictable because mm-hmm. we all know all the twists and turns. Yeah. But if you look at it from their perspective, this was very different. Yeah. Before Psycho, the majority of horror focused on gothic romances. Psycho would bring in ideas that are closer to the horror that we have today. It displayed sexuality, Depicting a woman in her undergarments, implying that she had sex outside of marriage. I know. Oh, man. TV shows were still showing married couples sleeping in separate beds at this time. 
I always thought that was the weirdest thing. <laughs> Growing up, my parents always slept in the same bed. I was exactly. like, that's what that's yeah. what couples do. That's what parents yeah. do. And then you watch on TV and they're in separate ass beds. Yeah. I'm like, what's yeah. going on? That doesn't make any do sense. They, yeah, do they doesn't. hate each other? <laughs> like, I was always like, are they, are they, they want a divorce real bad, but they can't because of their kids <laughs> the or something? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I, did, I never I, got it. Well, yeah, it was really just because of TV code. Yeah, wow. it, they, yep. that was the only All reason. because of TV. Man, can't assume the Cleavers are having sex yeah. because you know Wally and Beaver must be adopted or something. <laughs> right, know, the we, only other option. <laughs> yeah. Although there is some debate about whether it was the first American film to show a flushing toilet, it was still groundbreaking for doing so. Wow. Yeah, the... that's a nice stat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So some people argue that there are older movies that show toilets, mm-hmm. um, or have the the flushing sound effect. That was the yeah. big thing that people thought was groundbreaking. You could hear someone flush a toilet, and it's a uh. woman <gasps> flushing a toilet. The shower scene showed that nobody was safe, even someone who had more screen time at that point in the film than any other character. It also played on audience expectations with a twist, showing that even the most ordinary of people could be diabolical. Mm. We can even thank Hitchcock for having set movie times. Since Psycho was so dependent on being seen from beginning to end, Hitchcock was insistent that nobody be permitted into the theater after it began. At the time... It was common practice that the movies would be on a sort of loop, and you would walk in whenever and finish the movie and then stay to watch what you had missed in the beginning. If Psycho had been seen that way, the ending would ruin the effect of the beginning. That's pretty wild. I yeah. actually, but I kind of want that back. Can we have that back? <laughs> I know. Just movie yeah, we, it's like if you're late, like yeah. you just hang out and yeah. then you see the beginning. We kind of get that with our drive-in. Yeah, movie the drive-in theater, theater does that. Oh, true, because they'll show the first mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. yeah. Three years later, Hitchcock continued to push the boundaries of what audiences were willing to watch with The Birds. This film was also psychological, but it shook audiences with a new kind of movie villain that they never would have been able to control. Nature. The most disturbing part of the film is that there's no explanation for the attacks, showing that the characters live at the complete mercy of the beasts. Yeah. They never truly defeat the birds. The birds just stop attacking. Yeah. Wild. And then they drive away, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's just—I it, remember just how uneasy this movie made me feel because yeah. I watched this as a kid, mm. and it made me a little afraid of birds. Actually, yeah. I was kind of scared of them. Mm-hmm. Since these two movies were such big hits and pushed the limits on what crowds were willing to see, many other filmmakers tried to upstage them by creating bigger shocks or more violence. One director, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, took this direction so far that he is responsible for a horror subgenre known as splatter. Oh, we don't have to define that now, do we? Yeah. I feel like you could just get that. (laughs) Yeah, you got it. (laughs) These films focus on graphic portrayals of blood, as the name suggests. Hmm. Fun. Yay. In the 1960s, ghost stories were another form of horror on the big screen. Another monster that falls into the psychological category. 
Some films never explicitly state whether the journeys of the protagonists are real or not, but their survival usually hinges on their recognition of what's happening and their mental state. These films were often featured female protagonists. At this point, it was popular to show a beautiful woman in terror or agony in horror films. You could argue this was popular as early as the 1920s, but Alfred Hitchcock is credited with making this a prominent trope. Yeah, the beautiful woman Yeah, in pain, danger. But we think back to Nosferatu, woman in danger. You think mm-hmm. back to Warning Shadows, that 1920s yes. movie is very similar to these ghost type movies that were seemed to be warning women of something. Yeah. I think of King Kong too. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Another product of the psychological thriller era was Rod Sterling's The Twilight Zone. Many episodes of the classic show preyed on abstract fears of its audience, like loneliness and the capability of men turning on each other. Yeah. There's an episode in the first season Oh, it's all of this. It's so much. It's called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And it, that it's this. Ah. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of intruders mm-hmm. not trusting each other. Mm-hmm. It's about like all, all of that stuff. It's very psychological. It's that oh, your man. own imagination makes up the worst stuff kind of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they know that someone among them yeah. is probably an alien. And they just don't know who they it is. Know. Due to its B-movie status in the 1950s, there weren't a lot of well-known actors that were considered horror stars. In the 1960s, Vincent Price was possibly the most popular horror actor. Vincent Price has been known and remembered for his work in horror films, even though this made up a small portion of the films that he starred in. Some of his most well-known are The Last Man on Earth and The Tingler, which we mentioned (laughs) earlier. Uh... It's back. <laughs> His distinctive voice and ability to bring an unsettling presence to the screen left a mark on horror fans everywhere. Do you do you think he got one of the the rigged seats at the premiere? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he'd be like, mm, I shouldn't have one of these seats. Yeah, I'm gonna switch, please. <laughs> The late 1960s is still known as one of the most tumultuous times in American history. It was filled with violence and fear, along with a rise in counterculture. Now that films could show blood, filmmakers didn't hold back. They used the medium to spread messages to their audiences. Looking through the horror films of each decade, you can see the warnings that filmmakers desperately wanted to express. From environmentalism to racism, xenophobia to war you can see even in the birds you feel mm-hmm. like there's a little bit of an environmental message here even yeah. even if it's not no one's explicitly stating it the things were a little more subtle back then right yeah. but you know just nothing very explicit but just kind of you know yeah you know these were at the mercy of the world no matter how powerful we think we are no matter how many yeah. weapons we have we have yeah humans like, are not really in control and mm-hmm. and i think it would have been less impactful if Im- you can imagine them being like oh well if we would just stop driving cars around <laughs> the birds will stop attacking us. if we would just stop polluting yeah, yeah. 
George Romero was one of the most influential horror filmmakers of all time, and is fondly known as the father of the zombie film. Although his 1968 film, Night of the Living Dead, was not technically the first zombie movie, it is the most influential in what would become a zombie trend and set most of the lore that is held behind them. George Romero was a big fan of making statements within his works. However, one that he didn't mean to tackle was the problem of racism in America. In the documentary Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, he says, Why do you do horror? Well, you do it to upset the uppercut. But in the end, it kind of gets set back up again. We kill the monster. And I didn't want to do that. In order to accomplish not killing the monster, Romero, spoilers, instead kills the main character who happens to be a black man. No. Yeah, so he doesn't kill the zombie. He doesn't kill the monster. He he kills he kills the man. Yeah. He cast a black man as the main character of his movie mm-hmm. and then he survives all the way through the movie, which is already flipping like, a trope that you'll hear. Yeah. You know, people will say, you know, well, the black mm-hmm. guy's gonna die first. He has this character survive all the way through the movie. Yeah. And then for them to get for him to get senselessly killed just at the end. At the end. Yep. By other other people. Damn. By other people. Other people who think he's a zombie. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean it's it the the message is so clear we don't have to spell it out. Yeah. For right. Yeah. No. And I, I love that. I love it so you know, it's so <laughs> strong. But he's like, Oh, I didn't <laughs> I didn't mean like, to do that. Yeah. We're all like, You didn't <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> even the actor who played him was like, no, I, I thought it was like this the I, mm-hmm. the entire yeah. time. I read the script or whatever, yeah. and I I saw this character as and symbolism. I to- yeah, I totally got I totally yeah. got the symbolism. And George Moore, I was like, um, um, oh, sure, sure. I just thought you were a great actor, yeah. and I put you in the I role. Just, but I just okay. put you in the, in the movie. <laughs> I... It reminds me of doing critique. We we would do photo critique. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and sometimes someone who's critiquing you sees something in your art that yeah. you oh, right, did not right. put there. Yeah. And they're like, I, I love what you've done with this and the symbolism of that. And you have that internal <laughs> struggle. Do I claim that? Do I act like I did that on purpose? <laughs> or do I tell the truth, you know? Yeah. All right. So we got to the end of the 1960s. Nice. So let's talk about the 1970s. Yeah. It's safe to say the horror genre only got bloodier as it ventured in the 1970s. Oh, man. (laughs) Yep. Filmmakers built on the fundamentals of horror that had already been created, mixing psychology with gore, using horror to send a message or to express themselves. In terms of history, the 1970s seemed to be a more mature 1960s, building on the pain and turmoil of the previous decade. The violence in Vietnam continued on, as did the sexual politics of the time. So we'll talk a little bit more about sex yeah. in the 1970s. <laughs> there, was, there was a little bit of it. We saw a little bit of it in Alfred Hitchcock. And, you know, there's yeah. a little bit more of sexual freedom for women, mm-hmm. showing them in bras, showing them having sex out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. Some films still focus on the topical issue of war, like Death Dream in 1974. This film follows a soldier that was presumed dead as he returns home from war and starts to exhibit strange behaviors. Yeah, I mean, it's not something Mm -hmm. that you could shake off, Mm -mm. you know? Yeah, right. George Romero sure did start a trend with his flesh eaters. 
audiences gobbled up zombie films as more and more were produced. Mm. Copycat zombie movies took over an entire section of horror. Over the years, many more continue to be added with many of the same rules that began with Night of the Living Dead. The major contributing factor in this is surprisingly a lapse in copyright. Originally, the movie was to be called Night of the Flesh Eaters. When the title was changed, the distributor failed to put the copyright on the final print, and it entered into the public domain. Oh, son of a gun. Yeah. This unfortunate accident would be, in the end, a happy one, for it has grown the zombie horror genre exponentially. Oh, man. Absolutely. There's so many. Not just movies, but like... Any person who's into video games, too, will to say yeah. that there are so many zombie games. Yeah. yeah. I would say that if this didn't happen, it would be like George Romero didn't get to create the zombie. Yeah. Because it would be copyrighted. All of the things that he, the rules that he created about yeah. zombies, all of that would have been copyrighted. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be zombie movies now that have those same parameters. Right. Yeah. Maybe there would be new ideas mm-hmm. but this version yeah would be just in this movie yeah it's crazy yep. yeah so it's really interesting and it seems like he didn't care that much he didn't get a lot of money because of this right yeah he he mm. was uh got Bummer. practically mm. nothing the distributor who made the mistake got paid a whole Ooh. bunch but uh but of course he did not george romero the filmmaker didn't yes. make any money mm-hmm. well good thing he was a good guy huh yep As the war in Vietnam raged on, Americans felt divided. It was a type of class warfare in the States. Rich versus poor, young versus old, us versus them mentality. Larry Cohen's film, It's Alive, focused on the alienation that parents felt from their children. What happens when you're afraid of the thing you love most? This also perpetuated the the keep-it-in-the-family concept of horror films, where the family's secrets are best kept as secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I I yeah. immediately think of um, Get Out. Ah, the one that I th- most recently yeah think of. Um, obviously some family secrets that are no good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't want those getting out for sure. Mm, nope. Nope. <laughs> as horror films included more sex and violence, they became known as savage cinema. Films like The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes used graphic violence in a meaningful way. They depicted horrific acts that should insult viewers to great effect. To avoid fainting, keep repeating to yourself, it's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Last house on the left. Films often justify revenge violence, but this film promoted the message that violence is always ugly. The protagonists act just as violently as the antagonists, and it does not undo the harm that the antagonists caused to begin with. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. How many movies glorify revenge? Mm-hmm. Oh, so many. It's satisfying sometimes. Yes. I like that these exist. I like yes. that there are movies that people watch and they go, oh my God. Because mm-hmm. the whole time you have that feeling of, oh, you better kill him like they killed your family. Yeah. But then at the end it's like, oh yeah, that did nothing. Yeah. 
All that did was just end more life. Yeah. My family is still dead. I don't feel any better. Yeah. There's no, it doesn't, it's not satisfying. Yeah. One of the most iconic of these films is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. Many horror films begin with a sense of calm to lure in the viewer and make them feel comfortable before traumatizing them. Texas Chainsaw Massacre did no such thing. (laughs) This film told audiences what it was from the very beginning by bringing them to a world unafraid of gore. This film gave audiences the sense that there was something wrong with America. Yeah. This movie starts out with, like, dead animals and... Yeah. It's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Rotting flesh and it's things. It's not pretty. Yeah. So it is, this is not something that when it started, people knew what they were getting into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. You knew right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need to leave the theater. <laughs> <laughs> Much like in the 1950s, the 1970s horror still had roots in the American dream. Films like The Stepford Wives created a reality where that dream was manufactured turning something that Americans strive toward into a nightmare. The Exorcist was a film that traumatized audiences by letting them connect with the lives of the classic American family. Nothing is more precious than a young child, and watching a demon destroy the dreams of law-abiding American family filled audiences with dread. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Yeah, this is one, Mm -hmm. this is a movie that people around me are like, this is one of my favorite horror movies. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I don't want to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) That's one that I don't think I'll ever watch. Mm -hmm. Mostly because I'm afraid of the devil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like it's hard. Like I'm actually afraid of it, so I don't want. I just yeah. don't even want to watch. It, when it when it when it pushes the particular button, yeah. of you that it's like that's the one thing that I'm kind of legitimately scared about. Yeah, then it's okay, dude. I wouldn't even touch a Ouija board. Yeah, nope. no. no. Oh god, no, 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 no. Since sex was previously a taboo subject. The 1970s tackled it with reckless abandon. Hilarious. (laughs) The proposal of the Equal Rights Amendment ignited conversations about sex and women were becoming more powerful on screen. Like Carrie, for example, right? Yes. Gosh, oh gosh, I hope women don't get too powerful. Yeah. And they'll get telekinetic powers and kill everybody. everybody. Before you know it, they'll be able to vote. Just 10 years before, women were often the victims, and now they could be the heroes or the antagonists. They could be anyone. Sexual liberation was a prominent theme in the film Shivers in 1975, where a group of people spread parasites through sexual contact. The parasites make them essentially sex zombies. Definitely something new for major motion pictures. Um... What? <laughs> Absolutely hell. We're going to have to watch this one, right, guys? Sex yeah. This one's on the list. Um, yeah, so they're just like, basically, instead of like brains, it's sex. <laughs> Among other horror themes, sex is prominent in 1979's Alien as well. 
The aliens hijack the human reproductive cycle with graphic imagery that mimics that of giving birth and seems to show the violation of the human body. Yeah, it's Ooh. like terrifying. And yeah, awful. the blood, the screaming, mm-hmm. you know, it, these are all things we see during. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the, the long tail. Th- tail going down her leg, leg. kind of yeah. hanging out in the middle of, you know, where the, the magic is. Yeah, where, <laughs> the stuff is. where sexual reproduction happens. Yeah, exactly. Where, yeah, where sex happens. And, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it's. It, it just feels very icky. Yes. Yeah. When you see that, it's very. It's, no, thank you. It's the no. same. It's the same thing where if you were shown a guy doing the same thing, like you know, yeah. unsolicited mm-hmm. leg touching, right? Mm-hmm. But this time, it's a gross, awful, right? Yeah. Alien, alien. monster. Right, and it's yeah. like both are bad. Right. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. It's like it gives you that same vibe, yeah. even though this alien is not thinking of her in a sexual manner at all. No. Right. Yeah. But it's still that same predatory yes. thing. Yes, it's that predatory feeling. Yeah. Yep. In 1975, film changed forever when Steven Spielberg debuted the first summer blockbuster, Jaws. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. Spielberg tapped into the sentiment that Hitchcock attempted with the birds a little over 10 years before. Against man, nature is an unstoppable monster. He utilized the uneasiness and suspense, paired with John Williams' iconic score, just as Bernard Herrmann's psycho theme helped make that film a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. If, as somebody who has not seen Psycho, definitely know that music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And anybody who hasn't even seen Jaws, Knows. Knows the music. Jaws was an important moment for horror because it brought it back to the mainstream. The film was high budget and showed that the genre was growing in popularity. A high budget horror movie that made a whole bunch of money. It was another instance of American middle class life getting shredded. Get shredded. The horror of the 70s was a beautiful culmination of fears and concepts from the years before. Moviegoers were still dealing with the Cold War, with Vietnam, and the shock of Charles Manson, and the still-developing concept of the serial killer, which were not called serial killers yet. Mm -hmm. So John Carpenter's masterpiece, Halloween, built on the films of the past while also forging ahead where no film had gone before. This is another one with music that I recognize, mm. despite not seeing the movie. Very unsettling music. Yeah. yeah. In an homage to Psycho, Carpenter cast Janet Lee's daughter as the lead in his low-budget slasher film. It ended up being a breakout role for Jamie Lee Curtis, as she plays the timid virgin that fights her way to the end of the film. Halloween took the concepts of Psycho, premarital sex, masked killer, and even a similar score and applied them to teenagers. Horror stories had been used to dissuade teens from having sex for generations, and here was an updated example. (laughs) Oh my gosh, everyone's heard the hook-handed man story, right? (laughs) Yeah. The story of the hook-handed man. The teenagers are out in the car in the middle of the night. Oh gee, what were they doing out in the car in the middle of the night? When the hook-handed man appears, right? And leaves a hook on their window. I remember that I'll story. Get you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing that story, and my sister explained to me 
that story is to is to keep people from having sex. It's to mm-hmm. it's to scare people teenagers from being mm-hmm. out alone at night together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, up on Make Out Mountain <laughs> or whatever this Make Out Mountain, <laughs> whatever their spots would be called. You know, what yeah. I'm I mean, about. I yeah, I get yeah. Your we, we know we know yeah, what you're saying. We know yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Carpenter later said he was punished for killing sexually promiscuous girls in the film. This is, he's just building on the trope Mm -hmm. where a a female character is promiscuous and then she dies. And uh, this is a trope that got repeated. Yep. Time and time again. That's why they make fun of it in Scream. Yes. Which we'll talk about someday. Yes. But not today. But in (laughs) Scream, they say, don't have sex. Yep. You will die. (laughs) Filmmaker John Carpenter said of the horror movie process, Audiences don't want something too horrible. That's not entertaining for them. They want to be entertained. They want to have a good time. They don't mind some of the characters on the screen getting bumped off, even if in terrible ways. But you can cross a line, and the audience will turn against you. And if you're a filmmaker, you can sometimes use that to your benefit by teasing the audience. The audience will be like, God, are they going to show me something I don't want to see? It's great because the audience provides most of the action for you in their heads. Yeah, brilliant. I'm saying, man, yeah. imagination is the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard that quote, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I didn't know that they did this to me. I yeah. didn't know that, that <laughs> it horror... was purposeful. Yeah, because I, I was thinking about it last week. I'll go see a horror movie, and it's never as bad as I think it's going to be when I watch yeah. it. Yeah. And that's why. Because, because they know, they know that there's a line and then they know that when I'm watching it, they're like, there's something, you know, there's somebody watching this right now and we'll make them think, we'll make them think that we're about to do something unspeakable and then we'll do something not as bad. Not, not quite. And it won't seem because their imagination has made it so much worse. Mm -hmm. It won't seem that bad. Yeah. By the end of the 1970s, zombie movies were still going strong. George Romero is often remembered for using his zombie to parody consumer culture. In 1978, he brought us Dawn of the Dead, a continuation in his zombie series that he would make several installments of throughout his career. And as we know, zombies would never die. Ironic. (laughs) Yeah. Moving on to the 1980s now. The 1980s were a callback to traditional values. A new president, Reagan, came into office, and while many felt that his new policies would help the country, others felt like they were restrictions on freedoms. The horror movies of the 80s would address this by bringing horror into the normal, everyday suburban American life. Like the 50s. Yeah. Filmmakers would even be able to do this more convincingly as technology, animatronics, and liquid latex were improving special effects and visual effects. It would be a decade of excess. Excess of consumerism, horror, and Stephen King. Yeah. (laughs) I love how the 70s and 80s, looking at these, are just culmination of culminations of past decades yes you know that you hear the 80s it's a decade of excess you, you think of the 1920s yeah you know and then of course there's a lot of 1950s mm-hmm. that we're gonna see here in the in the 80s and in the 70s 
there was a lot of 50s stuff and, yeah. you know, some stuff from the 20s and the 30s. So it's really interesting. All compounds. Building off John Carpenter's Halloween, films like Friday the 13th continued to place teenagers in murderous situations. This film followed some of the same tropes that had been built and perpetuated in the 60s and 70s in regards to sex and horror. To further bring home the American ideal, it was quite popular to go after the Soviets as the Cold War neared its end after 40 years. God. Whew. Americans still clung to their dream of a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence, striving for the picturesque moments captured in Norman Rockwell paintings. Still fighting for it. Yeah, <sighs> in ways. Clinging on to it. <laughs> The concept of something sinister lurking in the most unexpected of places certainly harkened back to the 1950s and 60s and would explain why films like Little Shop of Horrors got remade at this time. Yeah. I was writing about things lurking in the most unlikely of places and I yeah. immediately was like, that's the beginning of Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, literally. Which came out in 1960 and got remade in the 1980s. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yes. This concept was also promoted in the film Poltergeist, even in its trailer. The house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so With their three children. In the trailer for Poltergeist, they're, they're like, you know, Picture this town, you know. Yeah. Oh, it looks perfect, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> like, idiot. Things are gonna go wrong soon. <laughs> because history repeats itself, there were plenty of horror remakes in the 1980s. But one of the most prominent was John Carpenter's The Thing in 1982. Carpenter said that the film was a bleak look into the future. He was inspired by communism and the fact that no one seemed to trust each other. This was true in the 50s, and it was true in the 80s. Yep. There's an imposter among us. Always. <sighs> Stephen King's novels and short stories lended themselves well to the cinema. In the 1980s, many filmmakers took advantage of these stories and brought them to the screen. Some of the most notable, of course, being The Shining, Creepshow, Cujo, Pet Cemetery, and Firestarter. In the documentary Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, Mick Garris says, Stephen King is the horror version of Norman Rockwell. His characters live in your neighborhood. Yes. Well, then I'm going to move away. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to cover the amount that Stephen King has contributed to horror cinema, and we will talk about him more later. But it's important to note that these stories are still influencing movies and shows today. Perhaps Stranger Things? Yeah. <laughs> if it feels like we're repeating ourselves when we draw parallels from the 50s to the 80s, it's because we are. <laughs> Just like in the 50s, horror became a spectacle again, with horror camp films becoming cult classics and fun spectacles to enjoy with friends. It became clear that filmmakers could have fun with these films, and that horror could be lighthearted. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a terrifying, traumatic experience. Yeah. 
it probably will be, yeah. but it can't. It doesn't have yeah. to be. <laughs> it just, you know, speckled in there, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. Some films walked the line of camp and horror, like Nightmare on Elm Street. One of the most iconic characters of the decade was Freddy Krueger, with his striped sweater, fedora, disfigured face, and hand with razors. I mean, listen to that description. <laughs> so yeah. over the top. Yeah. So ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you're watch- yeah. you think about it and you're like, okay, I can't believe, <laughs> you know, like this this has to be camp. There's like a yeah. level of camp here. But it's still scary, you know, because, you know, this is jump scare, suspense, mm-hmm. characters dying, characters that you care about dying. Yes, absolutely. He would often have funny one-liners that would bring a little lightheartedness to the horrors that he was committing. In the documentary Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, Freddy is compared to FDR. Freddy kills the children of those that murdered him, bringing the punishment of the parents' sin down on the children. Franklin D. Roosevelt, during the arms race, brought debt onto the children of America. Yeah, so it's interesting how you can see how these politics really played into the horror movies that came out later. Yeah. And the thoughts of these filmmakers and what they, you know, what they were yeah. having happen on screen. The Evil Dead was meant to be a serious delve into the horror genre. It was edgy and excessive and ended up being cut by 49 seconds in the UK version for its obscene visuals. When it was released into the public, the over-the-top scenes, blood, etc., made the film comical, even though this was not the intent. It still bothers me. Yes. That's the thing. I think it's funny that people find that comical. I watch it and I go, ooh. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so. I watched it alone the first time, so I was definitely like, eh. but I feel like maybe if you had a big group of people, yes. it would be. I think so, too. I think it's not really so much of a horror movie now. Since the first Evil Dead had become seen as comical, Sam Raimi leaned into this and created Evil Dead 2. My favorite thing about this is his attitude here. <laughs> yes. uh, he made a serious horror movie and he was like, this is serious, guys. And everybody was like, (laughs) and so he was like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to make another one and it's going to be stupidly ridiculous now (laughs) because apparently that's what I'm good at. (laughs) And he killed. Yeah. He went all out with shaky moving cameras and over the top effects. If a normal amount of blood in a scene would call for one gallon, Raimi would insist on 10. Oh my God. That is... (laughs) ridiculous but it makes it it takes you out of it and it doesn't feel right right. so that kind of helps you not be so scared Mm -hmm. these films receive a lot of recognition but a lot of horror camp stayed out of the mainstream these were the movies that garnered cult followings and explains why the 1980s is synonymous with campy horror films one of these was killer clowns from outer space it's one that we Robin and I, at least, Mm -hmm. remember seeing as kids. Nobody stores cotton candy like this. What are you talking about? Of course it is. (laughs) Look. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's actually funny. I see this movie get brought up on Twitter a lot. Yeah. Every time someone says, like, what was the first horror movie you mm. watched? Or what's the horror movie that made you fall in love with horror? Yeah. A lot of people name Killer Clowns, Clowns from Outer from... Space. 
And I just want to say, yeah, it was a fundamental part of my childhood because I saw it one time, guys. Once. (laughs) I think I was 11, maybe 10 or 11 years old. And I, stuck with you. I'm good. Like I remember it. <laughs> like I don't. There's. And it's so crazy to me because my sister, she was, she's about three and a half years younger than me, and it traumatized her. Yeah. And I just remember we saw it was like a summer day. Parents yeah. are gone. Brothers watching us. Yeah. This movie is so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. There's no way it'll scare you guys. Yeah. <laughs> they all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's the thing, it, it's, it, my sister loves horror now. Yeah. And that's, it's just so funny that, like, a movie like that can introduce you to horror when you're young, and then you can love it when you're an adult, mm-hmm. because of that experience yeah. that you had when you were a kid, so. I, as a kid, mostly just think I saw the scene where they're running around in the fun house. Mm. I mean, it's really the ship, I believe, but yeah. they're just, like, running away from these clowns, and, and that's, like, yeah. all I remember. Yeah. And so Horror Camp of the 1980s is probably a good place to stop for now. Yeah. You know, before things get too scary. (laughs) We'll get to the 1990s and beyond someday soon. Remember, history often repeats itself, as does horror. It's incredible to think that we can be afraid of the same things that people feared many years ago. Horror can transcend generations if it taps into the fears that make us human. Sometimes we don't find something as scary as we once did, and that type of horror will dip out of the mainstream, only to find its way back years later when old fear reignites. Our journey through horror film history will be stopping here for now, and at the end of the 1980s. Sure, there's a lot more to talk about, and a lot more to go back and dive into. In terms of the genre, we've just grazed the surface. The best way to learn about horror films is to watch them. So get out that remote, friends, and come back and see us soon. Um, Adam will be doing it too. No. Yes. We're going to be watching The Shining together. No. (laughs) You can do it. You can. I'll be fine. So I think this is another case closed. Yes. Woo. So. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I'm feeling energized again now. Good. All right, so you guys can find us, of course, on blackcasediaries.com. You can find our Instagram, our Facebook, if you like Facebook, <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter. Twitter's a big one. Always, You can always send us a message. Always l- let us know what you're thinking. What was your favorite horror movie? Or how were you introduced into horror? Tell us about it. We want to hear. Yeah. That'd be pretty great. Yeah. And we also have No Small Parts, our other show, BCD Presents No Small Parts. It's on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you want to go, or Anchor. And we also link to it on our website, blackcastdiaries.com. Yep. So please go check it out. Yes. Thank you. uh, We'll see you later. Goodbye. Ha, 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 ha.